welcome to the first episode of Crimes in Witch Demeanors. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. Hello, welcome, happy first episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're new here, which I am assuming that you are since this is the first episode, my name is Josh and I am a librarian and archivist by trade and I'm also a practicing witch. So I love the paranormal and I love the weird, but I also love research and facts and truth. So I strive in this podcast to bring together all those different elements and kind of mush them together. In the first half of the show, we talk about a legend or tale as it's typically told. And then in the second half, we have a ghoulish gossip sesh where I can use archival resources to kind of pick apart what's really true, what really happened, and what didn't. And we also read firsthand accounts of the paranormal, either sent in by listeners like you or found on places such as Reddit and Facebook and comments on article posts. Thanks again for joining me. So let's get started, shall we? In today's episode, we'll be covering the legend of Angola's Pigman. The story? A crazed butcher with a deformed face placed pig heads on sticks outside his home in order to keep away unwanted visitors. He was responsible for the brutal slayings of innocent teenagers, leaving their bodies hanging from hooks in his butcher shop. In death, the pigman now roams Holland Road as a half-man, half-pig hell beast, summoned from the hereafter by demonic rituals and pagan sacrifice. In his new form, he continues his reign of terror upon the living, confronting anyone brave enough to enter the land between the two tunnels on Holland Road. So, sit back, relax, and let's learn about the alleged history of Angola's Pigman. The myth of the Pigman is part of an intricate interwoven web of tales, or as I tend to see it, a tangled mess resulting from the attempt to use a common thread to weave together a number of tragedies befell a small town. But in order to understand the story of the pigman, we must begin our tale with a seemingly unconnected and very real mass casualty event, the Angola Horror. The village of Angola in Evans, New York, is a small town seemingly plagued by strife. It's located 30 miles south of Buffalo, New York, and sits on the western edge of Lake Erie. This small village was erected around the Evans train station, built in 1852, which serviced the Buffalo and State Line railroads. Elisha Derricks was a gentleman who built a homestead in 1855 on Holland Road, just south of the newly laid tracks in Angola. Winters in western New York are unforgiving and harsh due to the lake effect snow that blows off of Lake Erie to the west and Lake Ontario to the north, capable of snowfall of well over 8 feet. In the winter months, Elijah and his two teenage sons, Loring and Henry, would scour the railroad tracks in search of coal that had fallen from the passing trains. They would use this coal to fuel their hearth as it burned longer and hotter than wood. During one of these such trips in December of 1867, the Derricks boys, while collecting coal, decided to remove a couple of the railway ties from the tracks in order to use them as braces for one of their fences that had fallen into disrepair. Little did they know that this decision would impact their lives and change the history of Angola and the railroad forever. A train heading from Cleveland, Ohio to Buffalo, New York on December 18, 1867 was running very, very late. It had departed Cleveland's Union Terminal at 6.40 that morning 
and was due to arrive in Buffalo at 1.30 that afternoon. However, along the way, the train lost time and was running two hours and 45 minutes late. In an attempt not to be any later than that, the train was traveling at a dangerously high speed. And at 3.11 p.m., just as it was approaching a truss bridge over Big Sister Creek in Angola, the train derailed. The train rocked from side to side, and the brakes were applied, but the train was traveling too fast across the icy bridge. The last two cars detached from the train, with the last car careening down into the icy gorge below. The second-to-last car made it safely across the bridge, but slid 30 feet down into the embankment. Only one person was killed in that car. The passengers in the other car, however, were not so lucky. As the last car plunged 40 feet from the bridge to the gorge below, it came to rest at a dangerous angle, sending all of the passengers toppling to one end of the train car. As they all lay there in a pile, the stove, used to heat the compartment, fell upon them, releasing hot coals. The train caught fire. The kerosene from the gas lamps fueled the fire as it ignited the upholstery and dry wood inside. While some of the passengers would die from smoke inhalation, the majority were burned alive. Witnesses to the scene heard the screams of those trapped inside and could smell their burning flesh. For five long, agonizing minutes, the horrid scene was filled with the tortured shrieks of those inside. Then, just as suddenly as it started, it stopped. Nothing but silence could be heard over the freshly fallen snow. 49 people died that day, and even more were left injured. This infamous accident led to a number of railway reforms, including safer methods of heating train compartments and more efficient braking systems. Lucky for them, the role of the Derricks boys in this tragedy was allegedly covered up by the town of Angola for fear of any further damage to the town's already tarnished reputation. Nevertheless, a clipping from the Buffalo Evening News detailing the accident was hung in their home. It sat there either as a grim reminder of their shame or as a macabre testament to their ghoulish accomplishments. As the years went on, Henry Derricks married and moved onto Main Street, while Loring remained on the original homestead on Holland Road. He renovated the property immensely, adding electricity and running water and Loring eventually married Betsy Crabtree, a woman who lived as an outcast in her hometown due to the fact that her parents were first cousins. Unfortunately, Loring Derrick's hand in tragedies did not end with the Angola horror. In 1911, he volunteered to help ignite fireworks for Angola's 4th of July celebration. In an unexpected turn of events, falling sparks ignited the store of fireworks, launching them into the crowd. One rogue rocket pierced the arm of a young boy, and burned many others. After this incident, Loring became more or less a recluse, rarely leaving the homestead on Holland Road. Despite this, Loring and Betsy bore a son, William Derricks, on April 13, 1913. This would-be joyful event was marred by misfortune, as the boy was horribly disfigured. He was of normal proportions, but possessed a cleft lip, and his nose was upturned and split down the center like a pig's. Perhaps William's physical disabilities were due to the nature of Betsy's parentage, but Loring couldn't help believe that he was paying for his crimes. After the birth of their son, the agoraphobia of Loring only worsened, ashamed to let anyone ever see the boy. 
1919, the six-year-old Derek's boy had wandered onto the train tracks completely unaware that a speeding train was barreling quickly towards him. Luckily, he was spotted by the one-armed crossing watchman, Theodore Miller, who ran to his rescue, pushing him out of the path of the oncoming train. Miller was awarded the Carnegie Hero Medal for his heroic act and gained some additional notoriety, for he was already somewhat known as a skilled one-armed boxer who used to travel the country demonstrating his skills. William Derricks, however, was never even identified in the press, for he was deemed too horrific and a shame to the town of Angola. Despite this, Ted Miller felt for the boy, as he also had a physical disability, and they soon became friends. As William Derricks grew older, he worked as an apprentice in a butcher shop not far from the Derricks homestead on Holland Road. Though, it turns out William wasn't very good at butchering and was soon relegated to cleaning up the mess in the shop sweeping up entrails and wiping the floors clean of blood. Eventually, Ted Miller, having been a traveling oddity himself, used his connections in the circus to get William Derricks a deal. William eagerly jumped at the chance to be able to travel the country, earn a decent wage, and escape the ridicule of the townspeople and the shame of his family. After a few years traveling with P.T. Barnum and Ripley, Derricks grew tired of the unsanitary conditions and transient nature of circus work and once again returned to his home on Holland Road, marrying a woman by the name of Mildred Crabtree, his first cousin. During William's absence, Ed Ball Sanitation had opened a landfill adjacent to the Derricks family homestead, and William gladly took up the position of night watchman and morning gatekeeper for the facility. Wearing a hood to hide his deformities, William conducted bi-hourly nightly checks of the landfill to ensure there was no trespassing or illegal dumping, and, in the morning, he would open the gates to allow the trucks inside and hand off to his daytime replacement. Although he enjoyed his job, there was one aspect William loved the most. He had first dibs on any items coming into the landfill. He took full advantage of this perk, filling his home with items he considered to be valuable pieces of treasure. William's collecting evolved into a hoarding obsession, and he eventually ran out of room to store items inside of his house, and so began scattering his spoils in small piles about his property. To prevent would-be thieves from stealing his treasure, Derricks acquired animal heads from the butcher he used to apprentice for, and placed them on sticks about his property as a gruesome deterrent. The stories only talk of the pig heads, but William didn't care. He also used the heads of cows, goats, and sheep to repel his unwanted guests. William and Mildred welcomed a son, William Jr., to their family in 1962, as well as a set of twin girls at an unknown date. Sadly, in 1966, Mildred died. And like all the trinkets that William loved so much, he buried her in an unmarked grave on his land. William Jr. was sent away to Father Baker's boarding school, and no one knows what became of the twins. Word of mouth says they went to live with Crabtree relatives in Pennsylvania, but no one really knows for certain. Ed Ball Sanitation eventually left the Angola area, leaving Holland Road destitute and nearly abandoned. The road fell into a state of disrepair, so eroded and full of potholes that it was nearly impassable by car. However, nestled between the two tunnel bridges, the Derricks homestead still stood. William left to reign over his kingdom of refuse, now truly and utterly alone. 
In the 1970s, local teenagers began to use Holland Road as both a party spot and a bit of a lover's lane, since it was convenient that police rarely patrolled the area and it was hard to get to. But it wasn't the law enforcement they should have been worrying about. Young lovers who escaped to Holland Road in their cars in order to get some privacy would often be startled by loud poundings, not their own, on their car. And through the fog of their windows, they could see the monstrous face of a pigman leering at them, striking their vehicle in a rage. These reports continued without serious threat or injury until 1972, when things really caught fire, so to speak. Jacob Nesbitt and Melissa Mallory had pulled over on Holland Road because they were, quote, lost in needing to read the map, when all of a sudden flames surrounded their vehicle and smoke flooded their lungs. Hastily, the couple pulled back onto the road and headed west toward Route 5 and Lake Erie to escape. It should be noted that while Holland Road is a two-way street, the tunnel bridges on either side are only wide enough for one car to pass through at a time, and they're nestled right at the corners of hairpin turns, creating a blind spot. Speeding now, Jacob and Melissa came to the tunnel bridge, but their way was blocked by a large, old Ford pickup truck revving its engine. Its blinding headlights, nearly falling off the vehicle, shook violently and appeared to strobe. Flames shot from the exhaust stacks. Fearing for their lives, Jacob and Melissa turned around as quickly as they could, but the old truck was in quick pursuit. It tailed them closely, nearly running them off the road, and now they were coming upon the second one-way tunnel bridge. They didn't even have time to see if another car was making its way through the other side of the tunnel. They didn't care. They were scared. They pressed hard on the gas, accelerating faster and faster, quickly plummeting into the darkness of the tunnel. Before they could even register it, they made it safely to the other side. The black pickup didn't cross the threshold, and they were fortunate enough that there were no oncoming cars. After this incident, the police sent two officers to the area, but they never saw a sign of the old truck. But what they did find, however, was a patch of scorched earth steaming in the night. They went to William's house and knocked, but the lights were out and there was no answer. Since no one was hurt, this incident was written off. The first truly nefarious incident happened later that same year, when a utility worker by the name of Harris Tompkins went missing while conducting door-to-door surveys. He was said to last be seen around Route 5, not far from Holland Road. Is it possible that he knocked on the door of William Derricks and suffered at his hands, his body now buried amongst William's hoard as a gruesome trophy? This time, law enforcement followed up on the tips they received and searched William's property. They did not find poor Harry Tompkins, but the sight they did discover was almost as gruesome as happening upon a corpse. The Derricks' homestead was filled to the brim with newspapers, feces, and piles of William's spoils, or put more bluntly, garbage. Amongst the squalor, they found a child, aged approximately 11, who was presumed to be William Jr. With him, they also found a number of animals. William Sr. was not able to be located. Before legal action could be taken to remove the child and animals from the property, on the night of October 31st, 1973, the home was set ablaze. The smoke could be seen for miles around, but nothing could be done. The road was not easily accessible, and the water levels of the nearby Delaware Creek were so low at that time, it couldn't be used to extinguish the blaze. The house burned hot, fueled by the kindling of garbage inside, 
straight down to the foundation. Investigators could not discover a source of the fire, and no bodies were ever recovered. However, William and his son were presumed to be dead. Nevertheless, the sightings of the pigman continued. Strange guests began visiting Angola, stealing from the local shops, and then camping in the woods around Holland Road. They were thought to be William's distant family members, or perhaps comrades from his circus days. Then, on Halloween of 1978, exactly five years since William's house went up in flames, the very last home that stood on Holland Road was burned to the ground. Luckily, the owner had been away on vacation at the time, and so escaped a fiery fate. Although, upon his return, he had discovered that all of his belongings were scattered around the woods in neat little piles. The road was repaved in 1980, making it accessible by car once more. Fishermen and hunters reported finding makeshift huts in the woods and dwellings within caves. Piles of trash would be found along the side of the road, and animal carcasses could be found hanging from the tunnel bridges that bookended the property of William Derricks. To this day, sightings occur to those foolish enough to pass through the tunnels on Holland Road. Or as it's now known to the locals, Pigman's Road, a title that's rightly earned. After all, William Derricks has made it clear that land is his. Wow, what a wild ride. I hope you stayed with me for it because now is when the real fun starts. We can suss out fact from fiction and read firsthand paranormal encounters. I can tell you with 100% certainty that the Angola horror was a very real and very awful tragedy. And it's something that had a lasting impact on the area, but also on the history of railway safety. But Did the Derricks boys have any part in it whatsoever? Probably not. There's a fantastic book by Charity Vogel titled The Angola Horror, the 1867 train wreck that shocked the nation and transformed American railroads. And no boys or track tampering had been mentioned at all in the book. And this book is long, but it is detailed. And if there was any evidence of this happening, it would have been included. So there's no mention of the Derricks family in her book, and actually I couldn't find anything on the Derricks family. I assume that their names might have been changed for privacy, as one of the main sources that I used for this story claims it has. They even claim to have pictures of William Derricks, but they had conveniently been removed for the family's privacy. So that's a little fishy. So I thought, well, maybe they did exist, but both the names and the birth dates were changed. So what could I look up? I looked up the July 4th celebration that was mentioned, and I could not find any mention of it in Angola's newspapers of the day. I feel like that would have been quite newsworthy if someone launched a whole bunch of fireworks into a crowd and burned their clothes to cinders and pierced a young boy's arm, but alas, nothing. So I was like, what else could I look up? What would have been notable and recorded? And then I thought, oh my god, Theodore's heroic act on the train tracks. Part of the story mentioned that Theodore won a Carnegie Medal and a cash prize for his heroism. And I know for a fact that many institutions like Carnegie keep records of all their awards. So I went to their website and they had a database and I looked for Angola 1919. I didn't see anything. And I looked up Theodore Miller 1919 and didn't see anything. But then I was just like, then I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to look up Theodore and Angola without any years. 
And bingo, it actually did happen, but it did not happen in 1919 as the source material claims. It actually happened in 1917. But there is actually an explanation for this 1919 date. 1919 was actually the date the newspaper, the Angola Record, published the story about this act of heroism and the award that was granted. The event actually happened in 1917. But even better, the legend says that the name of the boy that was rescued was never published, but both the Angola Record and the Carnegie Foundation's records mentions the name of the boy, and it was not William Derricks. The name of the boy that was rescued on the train tracks was Francis J. Anselmo. And while not William Derricks, I thought, well, if this is based on history, perhaps little old Francis was the real name of our famed pig man. So I looked up his birth records and we had a breakthrough because he was actually born in the spring of 1913 as William Derricks was supposed to have been born. The dates don't match up exactly. Francis was born in May and William was supposed to be born in April, but I mean, close enough. It fits. It's the same age of the kid, train tracks, whatever. So I was like, this is perfect. This has to be the disabled person the pig man's based off of. But it definitely wasn't because I ended up finding Francis J. Anselmo's military registration records. It looks like he was drafted into the Second World War. And at that time, he was actually living in California. The good news about this, it might not be the pig man, but he did survive the Second World War and lived to be 68 years old. He died in 1981 in Los Angeles. He's actually buried there in Los Angeles' Forest Lawn Cemetery. So if he was so badly deformed, I don't think he would have been drafted into the war, first off, and also during the time of all these events that the pig man was supposed to be there for, he was off living in California away from like the nine feet of snow that we have here in western New York. But finding out that the boy was real and that Theodore Miller was real, I was like, okay, what about Theodore Miller is true? Did he really have one arm and was he really a boxer? That somehow is absolutely true. It was probably the most joyous discovery, but I actually found his obituary. Now that sounds really bad. I wasn't happy that he died, but I was happy that his... Just listen. I found his obituary in the April 26, 1962 issue of the Evans Journal, and he seems to have been like the sweetest man. He passed away at 88 years old on April 15, 1962. Turns out that he was a world champion arm bag puncher, and he actually won a few medals. But the thing that really like pierced my heart and made me just go like, oh my god, Teddy is so precious, is that he was apparently a very accomplished glass etcher, and he was known for his love of flowers, particularly roses, and he was known for his beautiful gardens. For his time, he was really subverting stereotypes. He had one arm, so he was disabled. He was a world champion boxer. He saved a boy from being struck by a train. He was a real estate mogul, which I didn't mention, but it's in the obituary. And he was also like this really sensitive artist who just loved roses like teddy i love you but i digress enough about my crush i searched all of the birth records of angola and evans and i wasn't able to find anything matching the description of william or loring or henry or this family and i was like where did this name william derrick's 
even come from. The name William Derricks didn't show up until the Hamburg Sun wrote an article in 2011 about Holland Road. The information came from Tony Burtis of the Western Door Paranormal Society, but other articles, including emails from Angola historians, support my hypothesis that William Derricks never existed. I also looked for Harris Tompkins or Harry Tompkins, the man, the meter man that went missing, and I could not find any record or any story of that ever happening. So there was that myth that I briefly mentioned in the beginning where teenagers snuck into the pig man's house, they were murdered, and their heads were put on the sticks where the pigs used to be. Well, first off, that is extremely unlikely that it happened because someone would have noticed it would have been national news. There's also another story that the pigman had killed the butcher and hung him on a hook in his shop. And interestingly enough, this story actually has a bit of a hook in history, so to speak. There actually was a murder of a butcher in Angola, which made headlines in 1931. It's actually a very interesting story in its own right. It involves the Italian mob and warring meat sellers, but um, this is probably where the myth of the butcher being murdered and then like hung on a hook somewhere happened. On a scale of like ooky to spooky, this story is rated dookie. It is there's no basis in fact. There may have been a boy that had a disability that people were scared of and maybe that this developed around that and then just weird parts of people retelling stories that they heard as kids kind of turned into this legend of the pigman. Overall, it seems like The Legend of the Pigman was a desperate attempt to make sense of all these tragedies and crimes that occurred within Angola and kind of make this mythology of their own. But what about the sightings on Pigman's Road? What are people seeing that is so scary? I can tell you firsthand that I've been to Pigman Road. I went there with my ex and his friends one winter night, and the scariest thing about it is honestly those tunnels. Like, the road is newly paved. There's room for two cars on these tunnels, but only one car can go through a tunnel at a time. So when you're driving through them just in general, you're supposed to honk your horn because there are these hairpin turns like right at the end of the tunnel. So you can't see if a car is coming through or not. So you're supposed to go through and honk your horn while you're going through so other cars know that you're coming. But interestingly, this has even been incorporated into the pigman myth where you're supposed to turn off your headlights drive through the tunnel without stopping your car if you honk your horn 13 times by the time you get from one end of the tunnel to the other pigman is supposed to appear I can tell you i did this there was no pigman other things that people are alleged to see are fires that start seemingly out of nowhere and then are extinguished just as quickly they report being followed by vehicles that just comes out of nowhere or disappears into thin air especially when they're entering or exiting one of the bridges the sound of humans screaming or the sound of pigs coming through the woods with no known source. Shadow figures looming on the bridges. Sightings, obviously, of the pig man himself doing various things, including walking in the woods or picking up trash on the road, chopping down trees, or asking you to stop your vehicle, which honestly, I would poop my pants. And then trains the bridges are still used by trains, mind you, but people see trains that are absolutely silent or trains that stop on top of the bridge as they're coming up to it. And then when they get out of the other side of the tunnel, they're just gone. So that could just be trains. 
Um, also, I will say Angola and Evans is a small town, and I think a lot of the disturbances and people and screams are just, well, bored teenagers. It's either what do you do? Go to Pigman's Road to drink and do drugs or like do drugs at home. You're going to go to Pigman's Road. And then people say that in the winter, especially, there are many experiences that they attribute to the Angola horror, which I would be 100% on board, chugga chugga choo choo, for. But the Angola horror, if you actually look at a map, happened nowhere near Holland Road. It actually happened, I think, like 3.6 miles north. I don't think the ghosts that suffered a horrible tragedy three miles away would just happen to come to Holland Road just to sit there. And then, of course, like electronic interference happens a lot. People lose their cell signals and radio signals. I think that happened to us when we were there. We either had walkie-talkies or, you know, our old flip phones, and we found it hard to communicate with one another. So maybe there is something fishy going on there. But don't take my word for it. I looked at comments on Facebook posts and stuff to see if I could find some other firsthand encounters. And the first one I'm going to give you is just going to ruin everything. So there is a woman, I'm not going to give her name, (laughs) but her comment on this Facebook post was just, Sorry to ruin everyone's experiences, but um, my family raised pigs on Hardpan Road, and that's where the pig squealing came from. There's literally an explanation for everything that's happened there. And a lot of people were just like, yeah, I grew up there, literally nothing happened. But one person named Kurt, this is what they had to say. Two events happened to me in the early spring of 2015. My son and I were driving on Pigman Road. As soon as we went under the bridge, my GPS and cell phone was turned off, and the GPS was still plugged in, and as soon as we passed the bridge, they turned on again. The other event took place around this time last year. I was going under the same bridge, and my car lights started to fade, and my engine lost power. It was like something was draining all the electricity out of the car. After I got through and made it a few yards from the bridge, the car was fine. I truly believe the road is haunted. And this is not the first story within the comments and stuff I read about car engines mysteriously stopping and lights fading. But who knows? I don't have an explanation for that. It's not like car engines run on electricity. I mean, mine does because I have a Prius, but not everyone does. So who knows? Maybe there is something strange going on there, but it's definitely not the pig man. And it's abrupt, but that, ghoul friends, concludes our episode on Holland Road and the Pigman. I assure you that not all episodes are going to end up with the stories being completely baseless, like this one is. And thank you for sticking around. This is the first episode after all, so I'm sure there are many kinks that we need to kind of work out. And by we, I mean me. I do talk about myself in the collective we. I don't know why. Just go with it. You can find a full bibliography in the show notes, as well as a link to the podcast Instagram, where I have some screenshots of documents that I've used to do my research, as well as pictures of the location. So please go there and give it a follow. Um, Again, this is our first episode. We're working on things, so please feel free to give me some feedback for improvements, what you liked, what you didn't like. And please, regardless, if you can give us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, it would really help with just this podcast continuing in general. 
and also a shout out to my friend Gianna Legamari for doing the show artwork for me. She's an amazingly talented artist. She's a storyboard artist who's worked on such cinematic masterpieces like Angry Birds 2 and Thundercats Roar. So thank you, Gianna. You are the absolute best. And then just a side note, I am also collecting personal ghost stories from my listeners in order to do hopefully a listener story episode, or hopefully many of them. So you can go ahead and send those to crimesandwitchdemeanors at gmail.com. And I promise I will not pick apart your personal experiences. They are your own, and that is not my job. Plus, I probably don't have your name and address to research your property. So feel free to send those in. Don't feel ashamed. Be anonymous if you want. So again, huge thank you for listening to this tiny little podcast that I've started. I hope you enjoyed it and look forward to more. So until next week, when we talk about Cleveland, Ohio's Franklin Castle, stay spooky and don't forget to sage. I hate myself. Just goodbye. Note to self. Work on a sign-off that doesn't involve stupidity. Plus, saging is bad for the environment, so... Ugh...